When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. With those words from Gramsci, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast, sponsored by The Nation magazine. In previous podcasts, we've taken up the issue of the so-called Pink Tide 2.0 in South America. And this is a sort of continuing story, and I want to revisit it with today a particular focus on what's happening in Chile, with also a discussion of uh, El Salvador and Nicaragua and the difficulties the left is facing in those countries. And to do so, I'm very pleased to have on Jeffrey Gould, who's an outstanding scholar and documentary filmmaker, currently the Distinguished Visiting Professor at the Institute for Advanced Study, which I think I'm constitutionally obligated to say is at Princeton, but is not part of Princeton University, except in some strange metaphysical sense. So, and also joining me is Doug Bell, a Canadian journalist, a memoirist, also involved with film, being a screenwriter and all-around man of the world. So, Doug, do you want to like maybe let's start talking about Chile a little bit? Well, I'm just I, I'm I'm thrilled to be here, she as always, and thrilled to have Jeff Gould on, who's just back, or you know, not like within the last couple of days, but the last couple of weeks back from Chile and back from sort of whirlwind, I guess, somewhat whirlwind tour of parts of Latin America. But Chile particularly is, is on my mind, particularly given the extraordinarily circuitous circumstances of the process of constitutional reform that's gone on there over the last couple of years. Very quickly, and Jeff, I'll, I'll, I'll throw it to you almost in stanter. They've gone through two or three iterations of an effort to uh, rewrite their constitution, which started with a plebiscite after 2019, a kind of popular populist uprising, somewhat from the left, against a longstanding tradition of neoliberal free market, somewhat authoritarian government dating back to Pinochet in the 70s. That plebiscite voted 80% in favor of a new constitution. Then you had a left-wing president elected, Boric, uh, and then the trouble started. <laughs> that we've gone through now two iterations of a new effort, which is now really almost back where it started, which is to say a constitutional convention recently elected with the majority, or at least the plurality coming from the right and the center right and the far right. So Jeff, if I may, I'm going to throw it to you and let you talk a little bit about what you saw on the ground and what's, what, 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 what's on your mind. Okay, thanks. Thanks to both of you. I was there briefly, and while I was there, I'd say several notable things happened. One was a May Day demonstration, or really two May Day demonstrations, which typified the severe problems on the left. There was one May Day demonstration organized by the traditional trade union Federation, whose acronym is CUT in Spanish. And that's that CUT has been around, was 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 a dominant player in the 1960s and, and early 1970s, reemerged after Pinochet and continues to play a significant role. It is allied with parties that in turn are allied with Boric. 
And that includes the Communist Party, which is still an important presence. I think it, in parliamentary elections, it got the last time maybe 12%, something like that, which in a multi-party system, you know, is something. So they, they staged one demonstration fundamentally in support of the government. And then the rest of the left staged another demonstration. And in that demonstration, which I happened to be, participate in, in the sense of walking along with everybody else and, and getting tear gassed, which does seem to happen to me every time I'm in Chile, I end up getting <laughs> tear gassed. So I, I don't quite understand that. But, but this was the tear gassing in, in this latter case had to do with actions of people who are considered to call themselves anarchists that dress in black and, and you know, they trash some windows and, and that brought out the tear gassing of everybody. But in the speeches, the one thing that, that, that made it clear was that everyone was called upon to emit what in, in Spanish is voto nulo, which I guess is null, not a blank ballot, but a nullified ballot in some ways. Yeah. What's what it just for our listeners here? What 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 would be the proper way of stating that? Both oh, a, a, a spoiled ballot. Spoiled ballot. Yeah, spoiled yeah, yeah, ballot. yeah. A spoiled yeah. ballot. Pur yeah. Purposely spoiled. Absolutely. Yes. And and so people were called upon to do that. And the basic argument was that the process had been so corrupted, so tainted by the compromises that that the government had to make with the right which in turn has you know, a dominant presence in the Senate and, and the Assembly. So you know, they made a number of compromises about the, what the limits of the Constitution could be. And as a result of that, and as a result of the very strong hostility toward Boric, who, who I should mention was a key student leader in 2011. There was a major uprising in 2011. And there were three people who were, who, who were the, the leaders of that, Boric, and then a woman, Carmen Vallejo, who was a Communist Party leader as well, and then another person whose, whose name I'm, I'm blanking on right now. And they're all, Boric is president, and the other two key leaders are, you know, close advisors and part of his government. So the hostility towards them and the parties they represented on the rest of the left, really amounted to essentially stating, you know, the, the, they have betrayed us, that they, are, that, you know, they are traitors to our cause. They aren't the left. There's nothing worth supporting. And, the, you know, the constitutional process is, is completely corrupted. So that translated in, in the elections into 16% spoiled ballots and 5% blank. And I just, some studies have that there was some kind of survey which suggested that the overwhelming majority of the spoiled ballots were from the left and they were from generally poor districts. So that effectively helped to sabotage the left's chances in these last elections, which took place, I believe it was May, May 6th or, or first week of May. And yeah. in those elections, as Doug pointed out, the, well, 
the far right got something like 35% of the vote. The center right got somewhere around 21%. And the body group, I think, got 28%. And another chunk of, of votes went to those parties, which include the Socialist Party, which, of course, was the party of Allende, but it's gone through major neoliberal transformations, they got under 10%. And it's important to point out two things here. One is that they're generally called the Concertación, which was the political alliance which took over after Pinochet, won many elections, and they constitute a support. In general, they have been supportive of Boric, even though you know, they started out being considered to be, you know, very way too much to the center for Boric and his coalition, but now they, they've essentially worked together. They got, as I say, under 10%. So the net outcome is that the far right, and when I say the far right, Kast, who's the past presidential candidate winning 44% of the vote when Boric won, he not only does he support Pinochet, and maybe one shouldn't judge somebody by their father, but but his father was was a Nazi. I mean, a German Nazi in in Germany, mm-hmm. and you know some of that carried over, I think, politically. But at the very least, he's died in the wool Pinochetista. So his party's getting thirty five percent of the vote, and combined with a more traditional right, they have you know. 56% of the vote, you know, very clear majority. And that means, I think, that in the end, the new constitution, which will be created, won't be a significant improvement over the current one, which heavily favors private enterprise in everything, health, pensions, education. But it'll probably include some measures that, you know, it's just sort of a bone thrown to the, to the, to the left, I'd say. So that that's kind of the most immediate situation. I could add a couple of more observations or just anecdotes which struck me as significant, one in particular. So in the, and I guess it's, this will also help back us up just a little bit because the important antecedent for all of this took place in the referendum of 2022, which was voted down by 62%. 62% voted against the constitution that was proposed in 2022. And that constitution was proposed by a constitutional convention, which was dominated by various factions of the left. Now, without getting into the long thing about what was in that constitution, I think some of the, there were two there, there, there were two things in, important. One, it was just very, there, there were like 300, 380 articles in the, in the new constitution. And they're right, along, right on its own. Like that's just too many for people to read and digest, 380 articles. And it was pretty much the, 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 this, the group that made up the constitutional convention really was, you know, essentially, okay, I want this, I want that, we're going to have this, I want rights for this. So it even came down to rights which are probably familiar in this country, and I don't want to make light of them, but like neuro rights for the neurodivergent, I have a strong suspicion that the 
vast majority of Chileans didn't know what that meant. But I think more significant was the call for Chile to follow the Bolivian model under Evo Morales and a call for a plurinational society. And what that what that translated to was far greater rights for indigenous people, but also it was interpreted. I mean, it was ambiguous language and allowed for the interpretation that the representatives of the indigenous people could basically veto legislation, that they'd have complete control over you know, a large chunk of Southern Chile and the complete control, you know, in all senses, in all sense of the word. And then, you know, a number of other fairly ambiguous statutes, which the right was allowed to interpret as, you know, a a right to abortion up to including the ninth ninth month of pregnancy. And so, so this gave rise to just this massive right wing effort at disinformation, and they were extremely successful. But unfortunately, part of the blame is in the drafters of the Constitution with the language they use, but also, but also, you know, the kind of incoherence and in, in length of the Constitution. Another, another argument that was made by the right, which the language of the Constitution, because of its ambiguous nature, allowed them to make was that they would abolish private property in the sense that really the private ownership of homes, which was not in the Constitution. But again, we're talking about kind of sloppy language and this kind of, you know, leftist thrust that we're going to, you know, impose our our view. So that, you know, that all contributed to the defeat. But there was one other, just getting back to the anecdote, there was one, there, I should say, there, there was a massive campaign on the left for what was the approval, approval. And that campaign had, you know, very interesting facets to it, which, which were the growth, which emerged from what the Chileans called the Estallial of 2019, the social explosion, which were the mass protests which swept the nation in October of 2019. Now, those, those, that period of protests saw the, the rise of what were called cabildos, which was an old colonial term, but essentially there were popular assembl- assemblies that sprung up all over the place. And during this campaign for approval of the Constitution in 2022, the, the, the same form reemerged. And that same form, and so in that form, you had neighborhood groups. So this guy I'm doing research with on something to do with the uh, Yende period and, and factory organization is from one of the traditional leftist working class strongholds. He himself from an extended working class family, very much tied to the left. And so he was you know, very much of an activist in all this campaign in his native community, which is Maipu, uh, which was certainly extremely important during the early 1970s. So he recounts the following. He he got, you know, a huge group of people from his neighborhood to participate in the assemblies. and, And in the assemblies, it was all about discussing the Constitution and, you know, what it meant for community organization and so on. 
And so during the course of that, he had brought on, on board some of his you know, childhood friends. Again, people who used to be, would have used to have been part of you know, the organized working class and now are not organized and are more of a precariat than anything else. So he brought some of them on board. And one of them, during the course of an assembly in which university students had been invited to or asked to participate and the university students from, from outside of the, the neighborhood participated in it. And after one woman offered her, her commentary, this former, this friend from the neighborhood says to the, says to the woman, you know, I'll just say it in Spanish and then try and translate. He just started it by saying, Mirese. And so that translates roughly as, hey, skinny, what do you think about so-and-so? Okay, so here we need to back up for one second. In Spanish, I mean, in Latin America, everywhere I've been, Central America especially, the terms, for better or for worse, the terms flaco, gordo, gorda, and then referring to skin color, all of those are just common expressions uttered millions of times a day by people just as descriptors. They have no charge to them whatsoever. It's just the way people speak, the way people have spoken for, I'm sure, centuries. So this guy just utters, you know, this word, flaca, skinny. And so immediately, a group of people, I, I think mostly women, surround him and essentially say to him, you know, don't you ever speak that language again. You're demeaning women. You're, you're objectifying their body. It's just outrageous. And they were, they, were, they were furious at him. And again, Without, you know, I wasn't there. This is, this is secondhand. But the net result of that was that the guy said, I'm done with this. I'm not participating in this shit anymore. Mm. And that was that. And so I do think that, you know, that symbolizes another dimension of the problem of the left. I think that that, that inability to communicate even at this kind of basic level and the, in, in the constant effort to impose a certain certain language ha has a debilitating consequence. So let me stop there. Well, it seems that. like from from that story, there's also a pattern that we we see elsewhere in the world of a kind of educational divide. That there's a kind of you know discursive divide between you know people who are college educated as as the female speaker was and people coming out of the sort of working class left, and that that sort of you know discursive divide like it has real consequences absolutely yeah i i just wanted to sort of throw in on, on a similar point which is it's it's astonishing to me that a a movement uh you know driven by the left starting and obviously starting prior to this and there's a whole history here but let's just look at the populist movement that grew up in 2019 I mean, that was as a response to a kind of quintessential neoliberal economic problem, which was that the, the, the working class and the student class came together over a pretty obvious issue, which was a rise in the price of public transit. 
in, right. in Santiago. And that was the, that was the sort of, you know, the precipitating, yeah, the, the detonator, the precipitating event, whatever you want to call it. And this business of being able to take that idea uh, or that notion of solidarity around something as simple as a rise in price, it, you know, that, that was, you know, and let's face it, I mean, it's a cliche to say it, but straw that broke the camel's back, 20 years of neoliberalism, the most unequal society in Latin America, you know, the idea that you were going to bump my, you know, just bump up the, the uh, what, what ought to be a, a, a public service, you know, for the benefit of, of, you know, privatized transit system just was, that was the bridge too far. All that having been said, you then get an 80% run up, you know, an 80% agreement that you need a new constitution, right? And then precisely because of the kinds of agitations that you're you were just talking about, Jeff, this inability of of internal dis discourse, sensible, consistent internal discourse within the left, has now thrown the situation into a complete tumult. I mean, even after the sixty two thirty eight vote, right? Which, and I again, I'm I I put myself in your hands in this regards, Jeff, because you know I'm I'm a guy that's just you know reading it in the paper like everybody else. There was a sense that there was that there was some money that had come in from, from primarily from the states to create you know memes and misinformation campaigns that got it to sixty two thirty eight. But even at that, there was still and again these are rough numbers, but th there was still at least a seventy percent agreement that there needed to be a new constitution. Even after the the, the Boric had been to some degree given a spanking and told, no, you can't go this far. You have to have it. It has to be reasonable. It has to be within a, a reasonable framework. And now the, the difficulty is, is that with the numbers, as, as you've described them, you have the right and the far right now being essentially able to rewrite the Constitution as they see fit. I mean, I, 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 and ultimately probably returning to many of the same principles and premises is that that wouldn't have given any discomfort to Pinochet. They, they, the, 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 and I'm sorry, I've gone on a bit, but the, the real problem here, I think, is this business of the spoiled ballots. Because that is, that's a big number. 20% in that, in that, in that case of people that would have voted with the left, at a minimum, would have afforded the left under the, as I understand it, and again, I, I put myself in your hands, Jeff, as I understand, that would have given the left something of a veto, had they had the, those votes been counted as part of a of an of a of a of a, of a, a, a conciliation on the left. But instead, spoiled ballots. You know, we're sick of the whole thing, and they walk away, and so it it leaves the left. I, I just I guess my question in all this, and there is a question, damn it, is is there. What is the way forward for the left after after all of that, other than just a return to kind of radical action and violence? Yeah, no, that's a that's a good question. Speaking of violence, I don't know what it what it was, but there were a couple of terrorist acts just yesterday, I think, blowing up, blowing up stuff, which is very anomalous. But I'm not sure about the path forward, but I do think that part of the problem is this notion that the Boric government betrayed the people, betrayed the left. And there, I mean, it's a very tricky question. 
because obviously he has been compelled to do certain things which he undoubtedly would rather not, and particularly his his you know his close associates who come out of that 2011 radical movement wouldn't want to do either. And those are those are ceding ground to the police and military apparatus. Uh, so, for example, in uh, the Mapuche area in the south, he's avoided. You know, it's often painted as militarization of the zone in declaring martial law, which is what the right wants him to do. And he hasn't done that. In this, you know, the background to that, again, for, for listeners who are not familiar with it, the Mapuche, the indigenous people, are one of the groups in Latin America, the indigenous groups in Latin America, who, who in some ways were never fully defeated. I mean, they, they, you know, they maintain a, you know, a tremendous amount of, you know, historical pride and, and militancy. I mean, they, they, they were really, I'd say, more than any other moment in history, they were defeated by Pinochet because during the Allende period in the early 1970s, they made really significant gains and they were, you know, a very powerful political and social force in the area. And Pinochet, you know, demolished their organizations and, you know, probably engaged in, you know, the worst forms of repression there than, than anywhere else and, you know, pretty dastardly seen. So, you know, the Mapuche during this period after Pinochet, night since 1989, you know, continued, continued to protest primarily against these major logging operations. There's a huge, I don't know the percentages, but there's a huge logging industry. And the, lo the logging's done on lands that the Mapuche claim. And so there's been a great deal of struggle around that issue. And there is definitely a group within the Mapuche who, are, who, who resist in violent forms. Usually, Almost always the, you know, burning of, of vehicles and that sort of thing, you know, just forms of resistance to halt the logging operations. So that's been, you know, that's been a storyline and it intensified during the very beginning of the of Boric's government. And that led Boric to engage in some repressive or order some repressive operations. But fundamentally, from what I understand, the, you know, maintaining the roads, you know, essentially saying, okay, the roads are protected by the carabinieri, the, the police, and, and, that, and that sort of thing. Although some people have been arrested, and there are a lot of protests around that as well. And then the other place where this is going on, where, where there is something of a militarization of the border, is in the north, on the, on the Peruvian border, and there, I, I, you know, I have to confess ignorance. I mean, there's been a lot. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. 
all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. A lot of immigration, a lot of illegal, I suppose, by Chilean standards, immigration, a lot of it coming out of Venezuela. There, there's a, a large immigrant population in 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 Chile. And when I say large, again, I don't have the percentages, but there's maybe a couple hundred thousand Haitians and half a million Venezuelans out of whatever nine million population. But this is a huge change for for Chileans. and And it's typically another issue that the right mobilizes on. And so this is part of the thing that the right mobilizes around issues of criminality, which apparently is an issue on the on the northern border that their gangs involved or narcotics operations somehow mixed up with the immigration issue. So you have, you know, the standard international right wing issues, immigration, you know, and and crime. And then the third one having to do more with the, you know, issues of of gender, those Boric has held the line on. But on those other issues of criminality and immigration, he, he has, I guess to put it in the political spectrum, he has bent to the right. And mm-hmm. so it leaned to the right in terms of more, you know, attempt at more repressive action. Now, that said, it's nothing like what a right-wing government would do, but, but that, doesn't, that doesn't hurt the right. I mean, the right just says, oh, it's ineffective, we need, you know, we need to do this. So, you know, just be stronger about it. So that's part of what's what's going on. But then at the same time, Boric is try, has been trying to get through what I think most people would consider to be decent progressive legislation. And that includes, for example, a reduction of the work week from 45 to 40 hours, a significant increase in minimum wage. Now, each time an attempt to raise the the pension, and now he's trying to to rewrite the tax code to make it progressive. He's been able to extract a royalty, greater royalties out of the mining operations. And each time he does anything, because his coalition, which, as I said before, is not just his coalition, which emerged to some degree, out of the various post-Pinochet social movements, but also the traditional parties of that concertación, that each, you know, they're in a minority in the Senate and, and you know, more or less equal in, in the Assembly. And, but he needs to, and this is a problem that is, that, that's befall all, befell all left-wing governments, is that they rarely emerge with with a majority in Congress. And so each time he's had to negotiate, and he has to negotiate with the right. And so, for example, with the minimum wage law, he had to offer you know, subsidies to businesses, that sort of thing. So each time, and, 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 and 
a similar sort of deal with the reduction of, of the work week that he had to, you know, he had to negotiate, he had to compromise. And so those things, so taken as a whole from the position of the left, you know, it's, it's all amounts to a betrayal. And, you know, that's simply a position. Is that a betrayal? Uh, th so it's, it's, it's observed as a betrayal and rough and ready way of putting it. It's observed as a betrayal, particularly or the core group would be that group that were that spoiled the ballots. They would say that all of that was 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 a betrayal. Right. right. Now, because, now, let me. So, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Jeff, but I, 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 I am interested in your just from what you saw on your observation ongoing. If he walked away to, to whatever degree or ragged the puck, as it were, Canadian expression means wasting time anyway. If he if he if he if he if he ragged the puck on the issue of 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 constitutional reform and simply addressed himself to these rather more sort of practical economic reforms, could he get to a subsequent election with at least the possibility of you know reforming the coalition that got him first past the post the last time? I mean, I think it's possible. I think, but but that's you. You raise just to touch back on the defeat of the referendum and how it impacted his government. Is that perhaps he made a tactical mistake by giving everything he could to the approved side back in back in 2022, and this was during his first five months. I think it came five months after he took office, and so he's you know doing everything he can, which again. Some people might have considered to be, you know, incorrect, you know, in a level like the government should, shouldn't get involved. But regardless, he got very much involved and he had already, due to missteps, been relatively unpopular. So that didn't help the cause in either sense. And the defeat was considered very much to be a defeat of him. Yeah. Yeah. And so in terms of recuperating lost ground, I mean, it's possible because I think his attitude towards the Constitution now is very much like, you know, that's not up to me. The Chilean people will get to vote at the end of December if they approve it or they don't, you know. And he's he's staying out of it, which is which, and then finally is a is a smart move. I don't know. It's it's you know the right is just powerful and resurgent, and the left is you know fractured and demoralized. So it's it's yeah. a bad combination. But if he continues, I mean, for what it's worth, I have noticed that his, you know, popularity rating has gone back up again. And that may be because some of these reforms are beginning to, you know, take effect. Yeah, yeah no, it, it does seem it, that there's some wisdom in, in trying to focus on policies that actually, you know, have immediate effect on people's lives and, and that this sort of a constitutional approach is both too ambitious and perhaps doesn't get you the sort of popular majorities that you need. But I, I think in terms of a sort of demoralized left, though, and maybe this is something we conclude with, do you want to give some impressions of El Salvador and Nicaragua, where I think the, the left has been very weak, and maybe give a sort of context for understanding why that is? Yeah, I mean, I think comparatively, the, the left is much weaker in Nicaragua and El Salvador. And I in and in, in Chile, I think the other thing to realize, I 
that's important is that the left has not just a long tradition that the left certainly has in, in, in other countries, but it's also very much of a working class tradition. So the working class, what was the industrial working class, you know, the strong majority, which in turn represented, you know, 50% of the population at one point or 40% of the population was you know, identified with the two major leftist parties, the Communist Party and the Socialist Party. And that sort of, you know, that is something that still resonates in the population. And so it's that, it's that tradition that now is still very important to a lot of people. And it's, you know, there's a kind of poignant moment coming up, which will be the 50th anniversary of Pinochet's coup that comes up on September 11th. And there the positioning is interesting. I mean, Boric and his supporters are really, you know, stepping out in front of this. There's no, no neutrality on this issue. There's just, you know, powerful, you know, a powerful educational and, and cultural component to their to their moves and, and they're meaningful to large sections of the population that experienced you know, the brutality of the Pinochet regime. The problem, of course, is that, I don't remember the exact figure, but I think Pinochet got at least 40% of the vote in, in the plebiscite. In right, as to whether he was gonna stay yeah. or not, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and those people have not really been shifted since then. He's still, you know, the Pinochetista block, people who think that Pinochet was a great man, or at least a man who, who you know, may have ha had some excesses. I think that's the term they use, is a few excesses, you know, like those tens of thousands of people who are tortured, few excesses. But, but, you know, they're still sort of supportive of the legacy. So it's, I think that's an important battle, but it also reflects on this particular kind of political tradition. Now, shifting over to, to Central America, I think one of, the, one of the things I noticed, particularly in El Salvador when I was doing research there in the, in the late 90s, was that the left, to some extent, had, had already abandoned some of its pre-war roots, its particularly its commitment to labor rights and organization and its commitment to land reform. And some of that, you know, with, without getting into, you know, a lot of the details of that, some of that was negotiated, was part of the negotiated peace process that, that the land reform, whatever had been done was done and we can't move on on that. But I, but I do remember a particular telling moment. I think it was in, 19, you know, in the late 1990s when the FMLN, which then was the left, had won, you know, parliamentary and municipal elections in Western Salvador, which at once was the seat of the rebellion of 1932, but also the massacre of 1932, and had subsequently moved strongly to the right. It became kind of like a, a military breeding ground, in part due to the terror, which was, you know, re upon the, the indigenous people of the area. And that's a separate issue. People are interested. I have a documentary film online and a book. But 
about the 1932 massacre. But the point I'm trying to get here is, is in, in the late 1990s, there was this reversal in that FMLN took power, municipal power, sent deputies to Congress from this very area. And I remember as I was doing research, coming upon this, this area outside for those who know the area of Nawisa, and there was this vast former coffee plantation, but already in the late 90s, it was, it was abandoned because it was at 800 meters, which with global warming, made it unsuitable to coffee cultivation. So already that, you know, that was taking these effects. And so nothing was being done on the land. And yet in these villages near the land, you had everybody was seemed to be out of work and with no access to land. So I went to the, the FMLN and pointed this out. Look, you've got this abandoned, huge abandoned plantation. You've got all these people right next to the plantation who've got nothing. Do something about it, for Christ's sake, one way or another. And, and the basic response that I got at various levels, including academic ones, people, academics who were tied to the FMLM, was that, you know, that was all passe. Like, there's just... You know, that's just not relevant anymore, you know, land reform on a minute school scale. So anyway, so that moment, that particular moment in the late 90s was telling to me. And I think it's also, you know, true, definitely true of the FMLN. It was in the government from 2009. It, it controlled the presidency from 2009 to 2019. It did very little, not surprising, did nothing in terms of land distribution. It did next to nothing in terms of support for reunions, because by then it had been transformed into something else, which on some level represented an historical left. And so it could still call itself a left. It you know, had this kind of anti-imperial anti stances to some degree. It had a, a, a rhetoric in favor of the people. It made some moves, definitely, like trying to provide meals for kids going to school. You know, it, it provide uniforms for kids going to school. It, it made a number of gestures that had concrete material benefits. But fundamentally, it was divorced from, it, it remained divorced from the social movements which had, you know, given them their raison d'etre back in the 1970s. So I think that was that was really significant. That contributed to the transformation of the FMLN, a former guerrilla organization, just as the FSLN, the Frente Sandinista in Nicaragua, being transformed from these parties with roots in 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 those classic social movements of labor and peasantry, and being transformed into you know essentially bureaucratic parties with vested interests in those interests not specifically corresponding to the the rank and file working class and peasantry yeah it's 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 interesting isn't it though that precisely because those their their eyes are off the prize and they're taking their eyes off the prize which is to say some kind of genuine social solidarity it makes them even more you know likely to be demonized 
by the sort of traditional interests of capital and and the interests that would stand against land reform in any in, in, in any respect. I mean, I can't think of two. Well, certainly Nicaragua. I mean, Ortega now is just completely demonized as a complete. And I mean, for good reason. I mean, there is a good reason for it. He has shut down a lot of the, you know, fundamental civil liberties in the country. But again, what's he left with, if if not any kind of commitment to, as you say, sort of traditional ideas of, of social solidarity? Yeah, I think with Ortega, I mean, it's, it, it, they are slightly different stories, although they both involve corruption. I mean, he, you know, he's turned, his government, it seems to be, you know, chock full with corruption, at least in, in a nepotistic sense, without doubt. And there's also no, not doubt that the, that the, there was tremendous corruption during the FMLN governments, particularly the first one, but the second one as well. And that, to me, I mean, again, without having studied it all, seems to be endemic. I mean, it's, it's obviously not strictly a left-wing phenomenon, but when your operation becomes business heavy, just, I mean, the FSLN starting with what was, you know, the, the, their electoral loss in 1990 and what was known as the piñata, when a number of FSLN heavies got, got wealthy all of a sudden because they were able to privatize to themselves, as it were, what had been collective goods, because that, of course, was the thrust of everything was privatization at that moment. Well, you know, they became an entrenched group within the Frente Sandinista, a leadership group that at once was also a business elite. And the same sort of thing happened with, with the FMLN because of all the, the goodwill they were getting from Chavez and oil money and that sort of thing. I mean, oil, you know, gasoline operations and what have you. So there were business interests which, you know, combined with political power, lent themselves to degrees of corruption. And that's certainly part of it. And that's, but just stepping back for one second about the problem of the, the left, I mean, what could be the left? I mean, in the case of Nicaragua, there was a Sandinista opposition to Ortega. It was typical, I think, one of its iterations, it's got a new name now, but one of its iterations was the Bolor, I think, the Renew Sandinista, the Movement for Sandinista Renewal or something like that. And it was made up by, you know, serious Sandinista leaders who had been, you know, in fact, I'd say the majority of the Sandinista leadership joined it. But what they were unable to do was to tap into those more clientelistic networks <laughs> that Ortega was able to hold on to and to foment. And they also lacked, I'd say, although they were Great historical figures were part of them, including ones who have been, you know, it, it were imprisoned by Ortega, such as Dora Maria Tellas. They they were unable to create a viable anti-neoliberal politics. They were unable to really develop any kind of of activism. Once again, related to the working class and the peasantry. And they, in the end, became kind of a middle-class phenomenon. There was a moment that there was a particularly popular one in 2005 who might have topped, you know, might have outdone Ortega before Ortega got elected president, but he died of a heart attack during the electoral campaign. 
but since then, that party, again, although they all, you know, the leadership comes from Sandinista roots, was simply unable to articulate kind of a left politics from, you know, within opposition to Ortega. And so what that means is that the opposition to Ortega, although it comes from a lot of different sources, does not have a clear pro-working class peasantry position at all. And I think that contributes to its weakness. Ortega obviously has been able to, you know, do a tremendous job at, you know, attacking any form of opposition these days. And to me, it's somewhat of a mystery why, because as late as 2016, he enjoyed a tremendous amount of popular support. And that's never been fully examined. I think that was another weakness of the of the non-Ortega left was their inability to fully come to grips with why Ortega and, and what remained of the Frente Sandinista could maintain, you know, such a political presence and such power. Yeah. Yeah. If I may, I, I, I just think that what you're saying is so interesting because it, it really does frame the, the extraordinary difficulty of sustaining a, a left coalition in, in terms of practical politics. Because precise, it seems to me that precise, that, and again, I'm blue skying here a little bit, and, but it seems to me that the, there's a kind of underlying, almost like a political sense memory that informs a good deal of, you know, a variety of different left coalitions in, in Latin America, which all goes back to the American intervention starting in the, 19, in the 1960s, that, you know, people were getting killed. Right. And Nicaragua sat beside Guatemala, where 200,000 people were killed in the most horrifying ways imaginable. And so, in a sense, that's what gives rise to the kind of, I would say, a deep seated, but not necessarily conscious sense of solidarity. And, it, and, and unless the left, and this goes for Chile, it goes for Colombia, it goes for parts of Central America. If they can't get beyond that sense of, and I, I use this term advisedly, resentment, right? If they can't create a, a, a genuine political alternative, then they're just going to be in this kind of constant, circuitous, sort of, a, you know, like an M.C. Escher painting or something, like, a, like constantly feeding back on itself. And not able to move forward, and and maybe being able to 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 generate some political support on the margins, but not being able to 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 actually move a left project forward. And God knows, I mean, I, I was thinking about what you were saying about Chile. It may have been a mistake to move forward with the with the constitutional process, but my God, they had an eighty percent agreement that it needed to happen. 80%. I, I mean, you're no, just think, never going to get better politics than that. No, no, it's it's true. I, there's a, almost like a technical question, though, that, 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 that I didn't mention. The 80% vote was with non-obligatory voting. And then with, with, the next, with the next election, voting became obligatory. 
And so there were a lot of people who were thrown into the process who, who weren't interested in voting were already yeah. back then. But But also if you have, as you mentioned, you know, like a very long, complex constitution, the voting, no, like you just need a few veto points. You just need a few issues that people like are really against and to get a negative coalition, right? But I, I mean, I, I think as sort of, you know, like, Wrapping this up, we're getting our thoughts together. I mean, I, th I think one important theme is the sort of, you know, necessity of the politics that's actually grounded in, you know, working class movements and has this sort of sense of responsibility and cohesiveness that that gives. And, and in the absence of that, you do kind of get, you know, parties that are simply there for the sake of holding power and are easily corruptible. And perhaps that's that's a lesson that applies, you know, far beyond Latin America. Yeah. Uh, so part two, of the, you know, one part of the demise of the left in, in El Salvador is the rise of this guy, Nayib Bukele. Uh, and he, you know, is, is a powerful, emerges as a powerful dominant force. And once again, although it's hard to characterize him politically, he's definitely not on the left. He, although he started on the left, but the key thing, the reason he's the fundamental reason he's so popular, is because he managed to eliminate criminal violence, the the violence of gang violence, which had terrorized major chunks of Salvadoran society, and he was able to do it through massive repression, massive violation of human rights. But he did it. So when I was there recently, I mean, you could. Just it was palpable in the air that suddenly there wasn't this uh, gang violence didn't exist. So, I mean, that just goes as part of you know the the left not only has to ground itself in in what Jeet was mentioning you know those kinds of politics, but they need to come up with some kind of response as well to the tremendous, I mean, the, I don't think the levels of violence in Chile or criminal violence or anything like what they were in El Salvador, but they're strong. And, you know, again, how do you deal with that? How do you respond to that? Obviously, none of us have the answer, but the left has to come up with the responses to that into immigration. Yeah, no, those points are, are really well made. And they are, I mean, those are sort of very powerful sources of organizing. And, and one could say more broadly, I mean, it is the sort of difficulty of dealing with, you know, social fraying and social collapse while also trying to, you know, push forward a reform agenda. It seems like there's a lot of tension within a program that has to grapple with all of that. Well, I want to once again thank Professor Jeff Gould for, you know, this, uh, this survey of three very complicated countries with very complex histories, but we, which I think that, you know, we've been able to survey in a way that's very clarifying. And also to thank Doug Bell for joining this conversation as well. As always, thanks very much. I learned, I, 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 as always, Gene, I, I, and thank you, Jeff. I learned a lot more through the course of this than I knew at the beginning. Thanks a lot. It's very interesting. Thanks.